And we are going to read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's a long chapter, but it's a, a chapter that intends to make a distinct impression on us. So we're going to take the time to read the whole chapter and let it make an impression on us. And then we'll try to understand it. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 204. And the larger print Bibles, 314. Deuteronomy chapter 28. <clears throat> Moses says to the Israelites as they are camped beside the Jordan River, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all His commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, and the crops of your land, and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land He is giving you. The Lord will establish you as His holy people, as He promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to Him. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground, in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season, and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. 
The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. And you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on earth. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors, festering sores, and the itch from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. You will be pledged to be married to a woman, but another will take her and rape her. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will eat none of it. Your donkey will be forcibly taken from you and will not be returned. Your sheep will be given to your enemies, and no one will rescue them. Your sons and daughters will be given to another nation and you will wear out your eyes watching for them day after day, powerless to lift a hand. A people that you do not know will eat what your land and labor produce and you will have nothing but cruel oppression all your days. The sights you see will drive you mad. The Lord will afflict your knees and legs with painful boils that cannot be cured, spreading from the soles of your feet to the top of your head. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror, a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. You will sow much seed in the field but will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them But you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil, because the olives will drop off. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them, because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. The foreigners who reside among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. They will lend to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be the head, but you will be the tail. All these curses will come on you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. They will be a sign and a wonder to you and your descendants forever, Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no corn, new wine, or olive oil, nor any calves from your herds or lambs of your flocks until you are ruined. 
They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. Because of the suffering that your enemy will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his own brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children. And he will not give to one of them any of the flesh of his children that he is eating. It will be all he has left because of the suffering that your enemy will inflict on you during the siege of all your cities. The most gentle and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and gentle that she would not venture to touch the ground with the sole of her foot, would begrudge the husband she loves and her own son or daughter the afterbirth from her womb and the children she bears. For in her dire need, she intends to eat them secretly because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege of your cities. If you do not follow carefully all the words of this law which are written in this book and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, the Lord will send fearful plagues on you and your descendants, harsh and prolonged disasters and severe and lingering illnesses. He will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded, and they will cling to you. The Lord will also bring on you every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in this book of the law until you are destroyed. You who wear as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left but few in number because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread, both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning you will say, if only it were evening, and in evening, if only it were morning, because of the terror that will fill your hearts and the sights that your eyes will see. The Lord will send you back in ships to Egypt. On a journey I said you should never make again. There you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But no one will buy you. This is God's word. I once heard a pastor speaking about a friend of his this friend made the decision to leave his wife and family for another relationship. At that point, the pastor lost touch with him for a few years, but eventually he met up with him again, and the pastor asked the man how things were going. The man replied, I gave up everything for nothing. I gave up everything for nothing. 
No doubt when that man made the decision to leave and walk away, he felt that the life he had was below par in some way. It wasn't fulfilling him. Maybe he felt the responsibilities he had were too burdensome in his situation. If he could just leave those things behind and get away, life would be sweet in his new situation. He'd have better things in place of the things he left behind. But years later, as he looked back, his testimony was that in fact, he had given up everything for nothing. The step that he expected would lead to gain had led only to bitter loss. And the passage we have just read pleads with you and me to avoid that same bitter mistake. The focus of our passage is not a relationship with a spouse. The focus is on relationship with God. And the message is, don't give up everything for nothing. The message comes first to Israel, of course. So let's remember why Israel needs to hear this message. In previous chapters, the Israelites have been told very plainly they have a war in front of them. When they cross the Jordan River, there will be battles to fight, many of them. Yes, Canaan is the land God has promised them, but they're not going to inherit Canaan by sitting around making daisy chains while the Canaanites placidly pack their suitcases and leave. Taking the land will involve years of struggle. And on top of that, not only are the Israelites called to war, they are called to obedience. And all of the messy circumstances of life, they are to turn from sin and seek to do good. They are to obey the instruction of the Lord. And last week we heard a fairly strident call to own their commitment to the Lord. Their obedience is not to be confined to their life in public. They are to obey the Lord, we heard, even in private, even when nobody else is looking, even when they could probably get away with disobedience. So taking all of that into account, it's likely at this point that some of the Israelites will be wondering if this is all worth it to live with these responsibilities. Might it not be easier, might it not be more enjoyable to live differently, to set aside the struggle with the Canaanites, the struggle against sin, and to do what they like in private? And in general, would it not be easier to live according to what's right in their own eyes? instead of living by what God says is right. No doubt some of the Israelites were asking that question in their heads. And maybe there are times when you and I ask that same question. Wouldn't it be easier just to forget all this and just live without God, without the responsibility of obeying His Word? without the struggle to turn from sin and embrace righteousness every day. 
I don't know, maybe you're asking that question this morning in your own words. And Deuteronomy chapter 20, it comes to answer the question for the Israelites and for us. And as long as this passage is, and as complex as it might seem, it's really making just two pleas. It pleads with us to press on to the prosperity God has promised. And it pleads with us to think about the unthinkable alternative. First in verses 1 to 14. Press on to the prosperity God has promised. A couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter 26, God promised that he would set his people in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations. And that's what's being developed here in verses 1 to 14. In verse 1, Moses says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. What will it look like for God to do that? Well, it's pretty concrete in verses 3 to 6. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. That's a description of concrete, comprehensive blessing. All round prosperity. Who else in the Bible uses this kind of blessing language? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The blessings Jesus pronounces are called the Beatitudes. And Jesus has an equally concrete idea of what blessing will be. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Not just spiritual blessings, but material ones as well. Here in our passage, there's a reminder that the blessing we're talking about is not necessarily immediate. It's a long-term promise. Verse 7 reminds Israel there is a war still to be won. And yes, God promises victory, but the battles still have to be fought. And verse 8 then suggests the bulk of the blessing will be after the war has been won. So as the Israelites look at the battles ahead in Canaan, as they hear God's repeated commands to obey his instruction, they're not to turn back, thinking that it's all too hard. They are to press on to the prosperity God has promised. Now, having just noticed a moment ago that verses 3 to 8 promise very earthy blessings, like crops and offspring, having noticed that, we might get the idea that those blessings are the height of the prosperity God has promised. We might think when verse 1 mentioned God setting his people high above all the nations of the earth, that that meant his people would have better harvests and fuller bread baskets than all the nations on earth. 
And that's clearly part of it. But the next verses show the prosperity God has promised is about more than just inheriting the earth. As great as that is, that's actually the minor part of this. The major part of the prosperity is that God has promised his people will be a people who are living proof of God's grace and faithfulness. Why would we call that prosperity? We'd call it that because there is no greater and no more glorious privilege than being an ambassador of the living God. To be a living representation of what his love and power can do. Maybe today we have reduced this word prosperity so that it means nothing more than being healthy and having lots of stuff. But the Bible has a fuller, richer understanding of prosperity than that. Tim Keller sums up the Bible's definition of prosperity like this. It means that nothing you do will ever be in vain. That's what it means to be truly prosperous. Nothing you do will ever be in vain. And on that definition, what greater prosperity could there be than to be a living testimony to God's grace and faithfulness? To be a display to the world of what God can make out of unremarkable material. Look how that point is made in verses 9 and 10. The Lord will firmly establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. The promise mentioned in verse 9 points all the way back to Abraham. Abraham was the founding father of Israel. He was referred to in chapter 26 as a wandering Aramean. A man with no particular pedigree. Nothing to merit God's favor. But Genesis chapter 12 records how God promised Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God went on to promise Abraham the first step of bringing blessing to all people on earth would be that he would give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan as their own. And now... As Moses speaks, and as the Israelites stand ready to enter Canaan, and as some of them no doubt wonder whether it's worth going on, considering the battles that are ahead and the commitment of obedience that God requires of them, as those Israelites are considering the cost, God says to them through Moses, of course it's worth it. You have the ultimate prosperity ahead of you. Not only prosperity in your sheepfolds and your storehouses, that's just part of it. 
The ultimate prosperity is living a life that is not in vain. A life that counts in the greatest possible sense. And what could count more than being a living testimony that the Lord is the grace-giving, promise-keeping God? When the end of verse 10 says, the peoples on earth will fear you, the sense is they will be in awe of you. They will be in awe of the fact that this unremarkable people have been made remarkable because the living God took them and set them in praise, fame, and honor. So, of course, it's worth it to press on in obedience to God. And if that was true for the ancient Israelites, How much more is it true for us today, God's people in Christ? Because the New Testament tells us God's gift of the land to Israel was just a token. It was just a preview of his gift of a new heaven and earth. The New Testament doesn't do away with the Old Testament promise of concrete, earthy prosperity. It takes that promise to a whole new level. It promises those who belong to Christ will inherit not simply this broken earth, they will inherit a renewed, perfected earth. There are battles to fight for us too. But beyond those battles is an eternal prosperity we can barely begin to imagine. And the greatest part of that prosperity is this. When we stand in God's presence, having inherited all that he promised, we will truly be able to say, my life was not in vain. All those battles against sin and against temptation, all those moments of choosing obedience instead of disobedience, every moment was worth it, infinitely worth it. And the greatest part of our prosperity will be the privilege of being a testimony to the universe of God's grace and faithfulness. The book of Revelation pictures God's people gathered round his throne, testifying that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. If salvation is God's great work, and it is, then what greater privilege than to take our place as a living testimony to what God can make out of unremarkable people. John Piper sums up the Bible promise by saying, we will be glorious and the glory will be his. Who wouldn't want to be part of that? The greatest prosperity in the universe. How could we ever turn away from so great a salvation? 
Well, the truth is, sometimes we are tempted to turn away. Sometimes we find ourselves being lured and seduced away from the prosperity God has promised. Sometimes it doesn't seem appealing enough to keep us going. And so in the second section of our passage, God says through Moses, we've looked at the good things that I promise. Now, let's think about the unthinkable alternative. Verses 15 through to 68 are a mirror image of verses 1 to 14. You can see that immediately in verses 15 to 19. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Those verses invert the Beatitudes we saw back in verses 3 to 6. And the rest of this long section is a very expanded mirror image of verses 1 to 14. And God says through these verses, the unthinkable alternative to enjoying my prosperity is to be a people who inherit loss, despair, and destruction. That summarizes the details of verses 15 to 68. The book of Deuteronomy has set out God's good instruction. This section describes a world where that good instruction has been turned on its head. When Israel is tempted to turn away instead of pressing on with God, she needs to know the only possible outcome. And here that outcome is described in full color high definition. Before we read this earlier, I said it is intended to make a very distinct impression on us. And it does that not by giving a logical step-by-step -step progression. It makes an impression on us by piling up horror upon horror. Not just physical horrors that impact the body, like sword, famine, and plague. Look down to verse 28 at the mental horrors that are described. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. That last phrase may be the most haunting of the whole lot. To be afflicted in mind and body with no hope of rescue. The next section describes futility in all aspects. No ability to enjoy marriage, no ability to enjoy home or the fruit of the vineyard. And in verse 37... Instead of being set in praise, fame, and honor, 
you will become a thing of horror, a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. Instead of the other nations being in awe of Israel, they will ridicule Israel as those who had everything and gave it up for nothing. Verse 38 says, Israel's hard work in the field will be devoured by locusts before they can harvest it. And that emphasis on loss continues until in verses 53 to 57, we hear about the ultimate degradation of cannibalism. Where culturally refined men and women the most gentle and sensitive man and the most gentle and sensitive woman, those outwardly refined people end up devouring their own children. It's a stomach-churning description. And the section ends in verses 58 to 68 with the whole thing being described as a return to Egypt. That place of horrible plagues. That place God rescued Israel from to make them as numerous as the stars in the sky. These verses tell us to turn away from God would be like heading back to the Egyptian slavery God had delivered them from. It would be a turn back to the oppression and misery God rescued them out of. And in fact, they would end up not finding a home in Israel at all. They would be in Egypt at all. They would be homeless. Look at the scattering described in verse 64. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning you will say, if only it were evening, and in evening, if only it were morning, because of the terror that will fill your hearts and the sights that your eyes will see. God promises his people a home. Those who turn away from him can never truly have a home. God promises his people peace. Those who turn away from him can never truly have peace. If hell is the absence of God's goodness and all the mental and social disintegration that comes from that, then this is surely a description of hell. To turn away from God's grace and goodness is to turn towards his judgment and wrath. That is the unthinkable alternative to all that God has promised his people. It's important to see that this is not the end of the story for Israel. 
This is a glimpse of what the end of the story would be if they were to decide the path of faithfulness and obedience is too hard. This terrifying vision of an alternative future is here to plead with God's people. Don't give up everything for nothing. God has rescued you from slavery, loss, and destruction. Why would you ever even contemplate turning away from Him? Why would you ever imagine that would lead to a better, more satisfying life? Does the New Testament have an equivalent to this? Yes, it does. Hebrews chapter 10 is the New Testament equivalent of Deuteronomy chapter 28. We read from that passage earlier this morning. The book of Hebrews was written to men and women who had apparently benefited from Jesus' rescue from sin, just as the Israelites had experienced rescue from Egypt. But the people addressed in the letter to the Hebrews were wondering whether it was worth it to persevere in living for Jesus, in trusting his promises. It seemed to bring a whole lot of difficulty into their lives to follow Jesus. Maybe they were wondering they'd be better to give up on the Christian life, go back to what they used to have, the writer of the Hebrews, of the letter to the Hebrews, knows that they're wavering, and to help them, he asks them to consider, in the first part of the reading we had earlier, what they have in Christ. And then he asks them to consider the unthinkable alternative to following Jesus. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. The wording of that is important. It's not talking there about someone who falls into sin and hates it and repents of it and carries on living for Jesus. This is speaking about someone who makes a deliberate decision to turn away from Jesus, choosing sin over obedience. The writer of Hebrews says, consider where that leaves you if you were to do that. If you aren't with Jesus, then no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. The New Testament says to turn away from Jesus is to turn to loss, despair, and destruction. Don't kid yourself that it's anything else. To turn away from Jesus is to turn away from the only one who can rescue you. From sin and its terrible punishment. He's the only one who can lead you to eternal prosperity. I've heard professing Christians walk away from Christ and say, I want to be happy. I need to do what makes me happy. This will make me happy. This thing that I'm choosing instead of Christ. Or 
this person that I'm choosing instead of Christ. This will make me happy. No, it won't. It can't. Not in the long run. In the long run, the only thing it can bring you is loss, despair, and destruction. No matter how inconvenient it seems to follow Jesus, trusting his wisdom instead of our own, living by his instruction, no matter how freeing it might seem to be to try to be captain of your own soul, time will prove in every single case to walk away from Jesus is to give up everything for nothing. And thankfully, after that glimpse into the unthinkable, the writer of Hebrews is able to say this to his brothers and sisters in Christ. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. The writer of Hebrews is confident these men and women will press on to the prosperity God has promised. He's confident in spite of all their stumbles and their waverings, one day they'll be among those who persevered to the end, doing the will of God. They will be among those who finally join the great multitude around God's throne part of that people who are living proof of God's grace and faithfulness. One day it will be seen to the universe their perseverance was not in vain. They will receive all the good things God had promised. And they will be a testimony to the universe of God's power to save and keep his people. And brothers and sisters, surely we do not belong to those who shrink back. Surely we belong to those who have faith and are saved. Whatever low points we face, we keep going, trusting in Jesus our Savior trusting that God will keep all his good promises. We keep going with our eyes set on our Savior who has gone before us. Our last two songs give us the opportunity to recommit to following Jesus and also to give thanks for the amazing grace that will lead us home. We'll sing, All I Once Held Dear, and then amazing grace.